Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yes, gaze upon me and know me, for I am the Christ child of podcasting. Yes, you shall Robert die Evans. for the sins of all podcasters. Mm-hmm, that's right. Future but then and past. I will reborn, be reborn, and sit at the right hand of my father, the Pod Save America guys. <laughs> <laughs> the Johns. <laughs> Johns uh, the Baptists. <laughs> This is this is behind the bastards, the only podcast hosted by the man that Vulture magazine called the Jesus Christ of podcasting. That's right. Look yeah. it up. Look it up. It's there. Look it up. It's there somewhere, probably. Um, maybe if enough people look it up and harass the reporters over email, they'll have to report on it in a story, and then I can take an excerpt out of that article and make it look like they called me the Jesus Christ of podcasting, yeah. which would be worth it. Yeah, I mean, that's how you play, you know, the beat the media at their own game. Yeah. You get them to quote other people's complaints, mm-hmm. and then you take mm-hmm. that complaint and you say, hey. Look, we said, all learned a lot from Donald J. Trump. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. Yes, we did. Can we not do this weird bit you're doing? Sophie, it's I not a bit. It's my it. life. It is my life. <laughs> um. Anyway. How Matt, are you? Matt Lieb is here. Hell yeah. Hey, I'm back. Hey, Matley. So glad to be here. Love being on this this pod. Love talking to you guys. Love, uh, you know, just plugging my podcasts and just begging your mm-hmm. listeners to just check it out. Yep. Pod Yourself the Wire, the only the world's only The Wire podcast. And Pod Yourself a Gun, the world's only The Sopranos podcast. Uh, yeah. Uh, check out Pod Yourself the Wire and check out... <laughs> yourself a gun <laughs> um i and, i need to uh, pause for a second because i just saw the worst thing i've ever seen on twitter <laughs> oh no what is it so uh uh christy yamaguchi main aka at waffle house on uh mm-hmm. twitter who is a fan of our show posted big homie bi- posted a picture of a uh, a decal on somebody's car that says messy buns and loaded guns and then it's a picture of the American flag, and then says, "Hell yeah!" And then says, "Raising lions, not sheep." 
Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a that's a person who has threatened to murder a barista. That's who that is. That that is a person who has pulled a firearm on a Starbucks employee. With my friends here. Uh, Um, That's amazing. Beautiful. That is a person who has unlawfully detained black people for riding a bike and asked them whose bike is that. Yeah. That that is a person who has pulled a Glock on a FedEx driver who was not (laughs) as white as they. Uh, speaking of which, you know who would have definitely pulled a Glock on a FedEx driver? Who? Napoleon III. Mm. Actually, probably not. That was not super a problem that he had. Um, right. But he but might have shot one in the mouth. He would have shot one in the mouth, I'll tell you that much, this yeah, guy. I'll tell you one thing about this Napoleon guy. He loves some <laughs> mouth shooting. Real mouth shooter, Napoleon yeah. III. He loves to shoot um, straight into yeah. the mouth. We can my favorite meme again, the shaking hands meme with Napoleon the Third and suburban Americans <laughs> shooting people <laughs> who absolutely shouldn't be shot. <laughs> shooting innocent people Pe- in the mouth uh, yeah. in a panic. In a panic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, the, there's an, there's another hand holding. It's a third one. It's just the cops. Yeah, <laughs> Look, a lot of fun. We can have a lot of debates about gun control, but Napoleon the Third is definitely a man whose gun needed more control. Oh, a little bit, <laughs> just a tiny bit more. I mean, disarm sure, all a, Bonaparte's. He has a right to bear arms, but not a right to tear mouths. That's right. right. That's right. Working anyway, yeah, you, you, you're doing good. Yeah. So. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, Napoleon III, um, in the space of about a decade, the first 10 years or so he's in power, Napoleon III takes France from being one of the sick men of Europe. It was seen as kind of an ailing power like the Ottomans Mm -hmm. uh, and a pariah and turns it into what is probably the dominant political and military force on the European continent, right? After the Crimean War, he's got sort of what's seen as like the largest, most cohesive and effective ground army. He's expanded like like over the course of the first like decade and change of his reign, he doubles the population of France by because con- oh. he's conquered all of Indochina. He's conquered effectively now parts of Algeria, Western Africa. Like he he bring he adds oh. some like like millions of people to French dominion. Oh, I thought um, people just liked the new empire so much that they were fucking a they lot. They were just fucking making a lot more babies. No. Yeah, a lot of uh, more menage a trois, you know no. what I mean? Menage a way more than trois for this yeah. guy. Cuz Louis Napoleon, horny motherfucker. Yeah, which we're that's about why to they get call to. him Napoleon the Trois. But first, I did want to talk a little bit about a fun fact I found about him, about how he used his newfound wealth and prestige to lord his position over everyone else, right? And that's normal for emperors, you know, you wouldn't be an emperor if you weren't going to do some of that. But Mm -hmm. due to a quirk of metallurgy and history, he wound up doing this in a very funny way. When the emperor would host other world leaders for lavish balls and high society events, he would have his servants bring out gold-plated dinnerware for them, right? You know, and this was not to honor them. This was specifically to contrast them to from him because he had a much nicer set of dinnerware and all of his plates and bowls and cups and spoons were made from what was at the time one of the most valuable materials on earth aluminum <laughs> hell yeah. yeah i love it whipping out his aluminum cups so they go oh, oh, yeah. i mean gold how <laughs> gauche <laughs> Oh, uh, enjoy your gold poppers. Mm, yeah. I am just going to crack open this cold beer. <laughs> this cold beer of precious aluminum. Watch me crash it. I'm going <laughs> to crunch it right on my head. Just shotgunning mead. 
So the general public didn't start to become aware of aluminum until the end of the 1800s. Um, the metal exists all throughout the earth, right? It's been around forever. We've been using it forever. But due to realities of geology, this silver from clay, as it was called, was generally mixed up with other shit, and we just didn't have the ability to, like, separate it and gather mm. it in significant quantity. For an example of how valuable aluminum was during the reign of Louis Napoleon, the mm. United States put a six-pound aluminum cap on the top of the Washington Monument, and this was, like, a big flex. This was the U.S. Yeah. being like, yeah, motherfuckers, we got six pounds of aluminum, bitches. Yeah. What do you got? You got nothing. Yeah, it was the largest shit. We're going to wrap this whole thing in foil. <laughs> it was the largest piece of the metal ever used at that time. Louis Napoleon actually granted a scientist named Henri Deville a massive public subsidy to study how to gather larger quantities of aluminum. He ordered military standards to be made from aluminum poles for his troops to carry because he was so enchanted by the sight of aluminum. None of this worked very well, uh, but that hardly mattered. The royal family wore aluminum jewelry. Um, Louis's son had a baby rattle made of aluminum. It was a wild time for what is today the most boring metal on earth. They've got like he's given his he's given his relatives like aluminum rings. They're throwing their it. gold in the trash. Fuck this shit. He's got an aluminum. I love fucking, aluminum. <laughs> an aluminum carriage that it just keeps folding. Like, God damn it! Can we make this stronger? Napoleon III was also notorious for his, 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 his can we say coxmanship? His coxmanship. Oh. Um, yeah, yeah, he is, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a fuck guy. You yeah, know, he's a, he's, a he's a fuck guy. He's a fuck guy. Uh, now, his wife, who he marries shortly after taking power and is pretty controversial herself and sucks, is the Empress Eugenie. Um, she is a huge prude. Some biographers write that she hated sex. Um, mm. So this is going to be particularly a problem because Louis Napoleon, Napoleon really it. likes sex. That's his and favorite the, thing. He does. The way he threads this needle is by cheating on her constantly. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. See, see where this is going, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. That's what he's got to do. So because things aren't working out great for Eugenie, um, and because after a while, this is not, there's no romance in their relationship, sure. Louis Napoleon has to increasingly go further afield in search of love, and this is where we get the story of the Countess of Castiglione. Mm. Born Virginia Elisabetta Luisa Carlotta Antonietta Teresa Maria Oldoini, which Jesus. is, Lot nobody, of names. Ne nobody needs a name that long. You know, yeah. three, that's three like words. Every that's every name in Mambo number five. Exactly. Yeah, this, this bitch is her own Mambo number five. <laughs> um, her parents were Tuscan nobles who saw the fact that they're, she, she's hot as hell, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they decide that since she's so gorgeous, they're going to solve, like, this is a problem, right? You don't really want to have a daughter who's, like, famously beautiful when you're a high society because, like, she's going to get up to some stuff. Yeah. So the only thing, her parents are just like, we got to get, we got to deal with this hot daughter problem. We got to marry her off as soon as we can yeah. um, and so they they hitch her off at age 17 to a 29 year old um, this is not a happy union they have actually a famously disastrous marriage and she mm. basically leaves him immediately to move to Paris and become the mistress of the emperor of France nice. this leads to a lot of drama uh, particularly when she wore a dress covered in hearts with no corset She's famous for this. Just, just, just let him, let him let, hang, let, letting it hang. Um, while and she, she goes like shows up at this fancy ball in this heart covered dress with no corset. While she's on Louis Napoleon's arm, and Empress Eugenie is there. She's like sitting in the ballroom as the emperor comes in with this chick wow. on his arm, which is like. 
you know, people expect an emperor to sleep around, but that's still kind of like that Jesus. stings a little bit. Yeah, especially she's not wearing a she's not <laughs> yeah. wearing a corset. She's breathing mm-hmm. normal. She's breathing normal, not wheezing. Yeah, everyone's like, this is a little mm-hmm. mean. Yeah. So we don't know why the two stopped dating, which happened in around 1860, but they did break up suddenly. Now, all of this is mostly interesting because the Countess is widely considered to be the first supermodel due to her habit of taking and publicizing lurid photos of herself, often wearing things that were like considered pornographic in the day. So she would put out pictures of herself in sandals. Oh, or shit. Like she's with showing an off them ankle toesies. Visible. Yeah, she's showing off them toes. Oh, we're seeing um, those little toesies. And she's she's got this access to photographers in part because she's dating the emperor. And as yeah. a result, if you look at the way she's posing, she kind of invents the selfie. Like this wow. is the she's the first person who has the ability to do this to like dress up in the morning and be like, I look cute. I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to send it out to everybody. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like she 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 has turned the world media into Instagram. She anyway. invented the duck face. Damn. Yeah, yeah. She kind of figured all that out. So that's fun. <laughs> Anyway, it's probably time to stop talking about court life and get back to everybody's favorite topic, blood-drenched imperialism. Yeah. Oh, God. Isn't it good? You just I like love to it. rub good, it all up good. in yourself, get it all mm. in your crevices. A nice Let's, warm blanket of blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The bloodiest crevice in the French Empire at this point in time is Algeria. Now, mm. in March of 1864, again, in like 1858, they had quote-unquote pacified it, right? right? In March of 1864, tribesmen in the mountains of pacified Algeria launched yet another insurrection. Napoleon III was forced to send 20 5,000 more soldiers to the colony, just as he was planning to take his first royal trip there to embark on a new phase of investments in the area. All of this came at a bad time. His brother-in-law, a valued advisor, had just died, and at age 57, Louis Napoleon is himself in pretty poor shape. Um, I'm going to give you a little list of all the different ailments this Ooh, man has. <laughs> Rheumatism, gout, hemorrhoids, a terrible cough from decades of smoking, and a heart condition. So he's just falling the fuck apart. Yeah. Um, but he decides still, I'm going to go to fucking Algeria, and I'm going to fix things up personally in this troubled imperial possession that you know my predecessors took on. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's interesting about him, he's a liberal, right? He's a, a monarchist, but he's a liberal. Yeah, and an enlightened despot. As a liberal... He doesn't think that, like, he's not, he doesn't talk about France's imperial possession the way that, like, you get a lot of British Empire guys talking about. Um, he talks about, like, he, he, he talks about it from this position of, like, we're going to, you know, I, I want this to be an Arab nation. And we just want to help them, you know, right, like we're yeah. here, we're here to like fix things up for them. We're not trying to take money out of them and we're not trying to, we're just trying to like make them a little bit better so they can stand on their own. Right. Yeah. Um, we're just trying to spread democracy to the Middle East. What's yeah, exactly. He's trying to spread democracy in the Middle East. <laughs> um, now I want to read a quote from the shadow emperor that kind of makes it clear the way in which he saw himself here. The Turks had governed Algeria as a province of the Ottoman Empire until 1830 and had done nothing for them, according to Louis Napoleon's lights. Apart from collecting taxes, the Turks had let them run their own lives, leaving traditional tribal affairs and customs unchanged. They had not encouraged them to abandon tribal tribal life, acquire private property, or try to produce agricultural surplus beyond their own tribal needs for overseas sales. All of this was wrong in the eyes of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. The Algerians needed guidance in entering the modern world of European civilization. Everything 
something had to change. But it must be done patiently and respectfully. You must be given equal rights, the same rights as the French population. Such an idea, of course, had never even occurred to the most enlightened Algerian. Tribal councils, popularly elected and chosen throughout the centuries, should now be disbanded, and along with them, tribal chiefs. Dismantle the tribe and its administration and become like France, he insisted. And yet, Louis Napoleon specifically forbade the creation of cantonments, or reservations. His knowledge of the whole-scale transportation and relocation of the American Indians, he said, had cautioned him enough to not repeat that experiment. And that part, I find that really interesting. Um, this is part yeah, that's of... What he, that's what he learned from us? Yeah, don't, don't do, do reservations. reservations. <laughs> now, absolutely end their way of life and destroy their culture so they can participate in, specifically so that they one. can participate in global capitalism, you know? Sure. The problem is, and again, he sees this as like the Ottomans being foolish. No, the Ottomans knew how to run an empire, which is that like, yeah, all we needed out of Algeria was Algiers as a trading mm -hmm. area, and we don't really care what other people do as long as they don't fuck with trade. And you know what's right. easy? Just letting them live their lives. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You just collect a little bit of tax and uh, yeah. fucking move on. This goes reasonably well for the Ottomans. Um, but it's like, it's going to be this fucking nightmare for France. And it all comes out of this idea that like, well, their their culture is a failure because they're not part of the global capitalist system. They're not producing mm -hmm. a surplus to sell. Now, the Algerians would say, well, because we have enough food. Yeah. Yeah. We don't, yeah. we don't, we don't really need this. What do we want money for? Yeah. We've got our own thing going on. We're okay. We don't need money. Yeah, yeah. We're doing, I can buy stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. What are you talking about? What, yeah. what do I need global capitalism for yeah. when there's a market right down the street? I, I have and food and crops. animal skins and all the, all the things that I need, you know, yeah. um, Napoleon the third is like horrified by this. And the fact that he, the fact that he, like while he's trying to figure out how do I dismantle and destroy this tribal structure, the fact that he won't do reservations is part of a fun trend in European history in the late 1800s. We talk about this a little bit at the start of this series um, you know, of Behind the Bastards when we did Karl May, who is this German author who wrote cowboy books that Hitler just loved. But there's this trend in, in European culture in the late 1800s where indigenous Americans are glorified and idolized in European popular society, particularly in fiction. And there are a number of reasons for this. Some of it is just that like yeah, man, it's, it was a real bad genocide that right, that, yeah. was, that was fucked up. Uh, what was done, yeah, um, and what it was, it's you know, is still being done. And that objectively point tragic done. figures, yeah, objectively a tragic thing that happened. But a lot of it also is that there's this growing anti-American sentiment, right? Mm -hmm. Some of it's because of you know the United States doing manifest destiny shit, but a lot of it's also just like. You know they're they're new on the scene and they're kind of like gross upstarts, right? Yeah. So there's that aspect of it, and they um, get to avoid like all of the the hundreds of years of European conflicts. You know, yes, they get to yes. just be over there. Yeah. Um. And it's interesting because they while they there's this aspect of kind of idolization of indigenous Americans, it doesn't come with any real respect for their cultures. And in fact, is often based entirely on fantasy presentations mm -hmm. of these cultures. And that brings us back to Napoleon III. Louis Napoleon was adamant that he wanted the Algerians to rule themselves. And he, he would claim that his administration was simply a way to help raise them up to a point where they could exist as a modern nation. Mm -hmm. But in practice, this was an incredibly bloody process. See, people don't like having their way of life demolished by strangers at gunpoint. Right. So 
Early in 1864, a tribal chief massacred four dozen French soldiers, and the emperor's Based. men responded by burning villages and rendering a huge chunk of the Oran province uninhabitable, right? This is, yeah. this is the process of bringing them democracy. Yeah, they killed yeah, some yeah. of our armed men trying to destroy their tribes, and so we must burn villages. Hey, the Tree of Liberty's gotta be, you know, watered by blood, yada yada, right? By the That's blood of the people you're freeing, yes. Exactly, bro. <laughs> In his writings on the colony, Lewis sketched out grand dreams of democratic rights and institutions for Algerians patterned off the French system. And a lot of this has to do with, like, I want this, you know, enlightened electorate and I want this education system and all this. But but most Algerians couldn't read or write, right? Um, because that's just not a part of their lives. A lot of their right. culture is passed on in an oral tradition, all that stuff. Um, and as it happens, the system they already lived under was super democratic. It was, in fact, more democratic than either France or the United States at the time. <laughs> tribal councils, all of the, each of these different tribes, was kind of governed by tribal councils that were made up of adult men who reached consensus on major decisions. Um, this was a stateless system. These are not nations. And it's, you know, not to say that it wasn't, like, again, it's all men, but so is the United States electorate, so is the French electorate at this point. It's not mm -hmm. like anybody's good on, on that stuff. Right. And it's, it is consensus-driven, rather than, like we have these elections and one party takes power. It's these councils representing all of the families and the tribe figure out what to do and vote kind of select representatives of the oldest, wisest men in order to help make calls about things like, you know, when we go to fight against another tribe or like if, if mm -hmm. somebody encroaches on our, our grazing lands or what to do if there's a drought. It yeah, is but a, Robert, it, they're not wearing wigs. Yeah, they're not wearing wigs while they do it. They're so not it's not democratic. Yeah. Like, I don't see how this is, this seems mm -hmm. worse because like how are you going to make democratic yeah. decisions without like old white without men and real wigs? fucking big ass wigs exactly they gotta be huge and weird fucking massive wigs exactly um, dude this is a again one of the things i find this interesting because this is a stateless system and it was one that for a long time algerians had been relatively peaceful and avoided starving right the, the system like this you can you can call these things like primitive if you want like, and people that you know, the fucking French sure do, but like this works for a lot of people for a very long time in a pretty yeah. tough part of the world. Geographically, Algeria is a complicated place to stay alive in. Yeah. Um, it works pretty well. Uh, and by all accounts, life was relatively decent there before the French took over. Napoleon's attempts to impose a different way on life on a people who had never seen themselves as part of the same entity was always destined for failure. They didn't see themselves as Algerians because they weren't. They yeah, were just right. like some tribes living in an area. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. They, they just get, someone just gave them labels yeah. and they were just yeah. like, no, that's not what you're talking about. I think this is another area where like the things he'd been reading about Native Americans had colored his opinion because he he saw the Algerians as a race in decline, which is definitely how the Europeans looked at indigenous Americans, even though oh, yeah. there was no evidence that they'd been in any kind of trouble under the Ottomans, right? Mm -hmm. um, they were not like having serious problems. It was, again, you know, this is not a perfect, I'm not trying to paint this as like a, a, a fucking paradise, but like there right. was no evidence that they were having any particular kind of issues. Yeah. Um, but Napoleon's going to fix all that. He's going to give them some serious goddamn problems. And we're yeah. going to talk about that. But first, Matt. What? You know what Napoleon would love? Uh, me to use my soundboard right now? That's right, baby. Sorry. <laughs> No, what? What would do, he like? Do, you should get a soundboard 
from uh from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Stick a stick a Napoleon Bonaparte on in there. Oh shit! Fuck! Mm-hmm. Too late for mm-hmm. that. But hey, do it yeah. in post. Yeah, you just remember one of the classic lines from that movie, all of which I have forgotten at this point. Yeah, the um, the guitar sound when they're excited. Mm-hmm. George There's Carlin also the sound they make weeping. when they come. Yeah, that's right. Think about Keanu Reeves coming and then buy some products. <laughs> that's the way it sounds, baby. <laughs> Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and we're just thinking about how it sounds when Keanu Reeves comes. Um, sounds like cool. a normal person. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think Excellent. so. One day I'll meet him, and I'll, I'll ask. What it sounds like when he comes? Yeah, what does it sound like when you come, Keanu Reeves? <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm sure he'd answer. He seems cool. I'm sure he would have an answer. I'm not sure he'd appreciate that specific question. Oh, no, yeah, no, certainly wouldn't appreciate it, but he would have something for it. So Napoleon III's whole goal is to take the Algerian people out of the place they had been living, out of the their ancestral homelands, to pub make so basically no one owned land in algeria right you had like mm-hmm. this is our hunting ground this is where we graze our sheep and if a tribe comes in maybe there would be a conflict over it but it was not nobody people didn't have like a piece like, of paper that said this yeah your yeah, land. yeah he basically is going to over the course of his time in power 
take away all of the lands owned by tribes because there's mm-hmm. initially this sense of like, well, what if we give the tribes some land and some of it becomes France's? He's going to get rid of all of that over time because his goal is to force all of these people who are, again, perfectly happy being yeah. li- living in the fucking hills and mountains and, and whatnot of Algeria yeah. um, and force them to move into modern cities with wide French style boulevards, <laughs> electric power and parliamentary democracy. Now that'll work out. That'll work out. It doesn't. There's a fucking insurrection. And the first thing Napoleon does when this insurrection happens is he appoints a new leader, a non-military leader. Cause he's like, well, maybe they killed those soldiers because the military was being too aggressive. You know what I'll mm-hmm. do? I'm going to put my best guy in charge of things. And you know who that's going to be? Greg Napoleon? Yeah, old Prince Jerome. The guy who had <laughs> fucking fled the field in Crimea. <laughs> old Greg's back. Yeah, hey, it's yeah. me. Yeah, it's me. Jerry Napoleon. Yeah. So he puts gutless Bonaparte in charge, mm-hmm. uh, replacing the old military leader of the colony. And again, the military their solution to problems was massacring villages. So I'm not saying like he should have let those guys stay in power, mm-hmm. but, but Prince Jerome is like a high society liberal and he brings with him to Algiers, a coterie of Parisian high society liberals. Um, and he, he's going to attempt to democratize Algeria. And I'm going to read again from the shadow emperor here. Quote, the brooding Plon Plon, that's his, his other nickname, personally knew nothing about Algeria, its history, or its people, and had no plans to learn by touring the country, or indeed, even to leaving the capital of Algiers. He was only interested in introducing his personal theoretical liberal reforms. But when, for instance, on February 16th, 1859, he announced from France, where he had returned in December of 1858, that the natives would be free to sell or acquire land, including tribal land, all sides were up in arms. Strictly defined lands could no longer easily be confiscated confiscated by the state. The result, the tribes would eventually break up, disintegrate, and disappear. As the totality of their tribes literally constituted Algeria, this meant the entire social structure protecting the members of each tribe would no longer exist, resulting in a veritable diaspora of tribesmen. And uh, today, one of the big social problems France has is that there's this constant wave of people fleeing Algeria, which mm-hmm. has caused a lot of particularly racist in France, racists in France have a lot of issues with that. This mm-hmm. is where that all starts, right? This is like why they come over to France because the French emperor destroys the entire way social structure. And yeah, social exactly. Structure. <laughs> and suddenly people have like nowhere to be. Yeah. Turns out that's I a just, bad idea. I just wanted them to wear wigs and have papers mm-hmm. that say, this is my house. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. And then they came to France and all of the racists were angry about it for forever. Yep. Um, so when this uprising starts in 1864, it's clear that Plon Plon has failed. And when he visits Algeria, the emperor brings with him an authoritarian regime to replace Plon Plon's liberal one, which was going to use terrible force to bring peace. He appoints a military officer, Patrice de McMahon, who goes on a spree of massacres. Despite this, Algeria's vast size and diffuse population proved difficult to control. The population migrations caused by land reform policies and waves of refugees from the fighting ran up against a horrible drought that hit in 1867 and 1868, devastating local agriculture. Next came a series of earthquakes and then cholera and typhoid epidemics. These disasters had all occurred in the past and had been handled by Algerians through mutual aid, right? These tribes had ways of... This is the same thing you see in India when the East India Company takes over and destroy all these different trading agreements within villages because people... 
people, it always dealt with like bad times. And when one village doesn't produce enough food, other villages didn't tend to let them starve to death. Right. Tribes in Alderia work the same way, right? We take care of each other when things are really bad because that's just better for everybody. Napoleon III has destroyed all of these structures that used to protect people, that used to allow folks to deal with this kind of shit, in addition to killing a shitload of them. So the chaos of the upheaval of Napoleon meant that there was nothing in place to protect these people. More than 300,000 Algerians die in a four-year period. This is from disease, along with 350,000 who are killed by the military in an ethnic cleansing. This oh. amounts to one-third of the Algerian population pre-Louis Napoleon. shit. Yeah, this is like... Pretty bad genocide. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, if, if you're wondering why Algeria's had a rough time of it in the last century or so. <laughs> There's a little history to it. <laughs> yeah. Might, might be a little bit of history there. Might be a might little be, bit of context you're yeah, missing out on. Might be a super obvious, might be entirely <laughs> France's fault, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, if it ain't broke, fix it. They're fix not wearing it. wigs. Yeah, yeah. Well, now they are. So, at around the same time, while all this is going on in Algeria, Louis Napoleon is fucking around in a weirdly similar way in a completely different part of the world. Mexico. Now, mm. as I'd said, he spent years, most of the early 1860s, trying to convince Maximilian Habsburg to become the emperor of Mexico. They're talking about this for years. Now, Maximilian is an interesting dude. Again, he's the younger brother to Franz Joseph, the emperor of Austria-Hungary, uh, who Louis had recently bested in a war. And Max had kind of a fraught relationship with his brother. They were close as kids, but as they get older, his brother thinks that he's gunning for the throne, and so keeps trying to foist him off on these do-nothing jobs. Maximilian is kind of running Austrian Italy for a while before he gets overthrown, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And he's when he's kind of running Austrian Italy, he's, he's trying to be like this liberal, right? Where he's like, well, maybe they'll like being ruled by Austria if, uh, if I introduce reforms. And like, yeah. that never works because people don't like to be ruled. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and but anyway. it's like, no, but you can have some speech. Yeah, not against the Austrian no, dynasty. No, 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 but, no, no. But, let's not get crazy yeah. here. Yeah, uh, anyway, it doesn't work great. Uh, he gets run out of town on the fucking rails. And yeah, Lewis, uh, you know, he's he's got this, his older brother kind of wants him away. And so the fact, the idea, like the Franz Joseph actually winds up backing Napoleon's plan to make him the emperor of Mexico for a while. He's <laughs> yeah, like, send him across yeah, the man, get the fuck out. Well, in part because he can make him sign a contract saying, I give up my right to inherit the Habsburg throne. Oh, very um, nice. Cause you can't, you know, be the king of the emperor of Mexico and be the emperor, you know, in line for the empire of Austria, Hungary. Oh, sorry. Um, arbitrary rules are arbitrary rules. <laughs> yeah. And Maximilian is a very similar kind of guy to Plon Plon. He's this idealistic, naive, arrogant liberal who wants to reform things and be seen as a reformer, but also wants to be the guy running things and wants it all to be done his way. Yeah. Um, and he does, he wants to reform Mexican society in what you might call vaguely center-left directions. Mm. Um, and doing this means, though, defeating the already pretty, for the time, left-wing legitimate government of Mexico, which is a republic currently governed by the elected leader who was an indigenous Mexican man named Benito Juarez. Like mm -hmm. he's, a, he's got indigenous ancestry and he's Juarez is a fascinating 
Yeah. Fascinating man. A tough son of a bitch. Cool, cool um, ass dude. Cool ass dude. He had been elected president after finishing a vicious civil war, um, beating the conservatives who sought an autocratic dictatorial form of government different from Juarez's republic. So Maximilian, he wants kind of a broadly similar social structure to what the Mexican Republicans are pushing. He just wants to run it, which is mm-hmm. what it's not like he's it's not like that Mexico had this like horrible dictatorship. They had just fought a war and a republic had been elected kind of along the lines that Maximilian thought was good. He right. just wanted to kill them and, and do it himself. Yeah, yeah. He's like, okay, but what you guys got this Mexican mm. doing the job. Mm. You know, this is the problem. They're this, coming here to taking our, our president I'm a Habsburg. Look yeah. at my chin. <laughs> it's funny. This guy, this guy isn't even inbred. Mm. What the fuck? People will make Habsburg chin jokes at Edward Habsburg on Twitter, and he'll always respond by like, oh, get another joke, guys. And it's like, well, that's the joke because your family ruled the world while like constantly fucking each other and and producing kids who like didn't like couldn't functionally rule the countries they were born to inherit and it led mm-hmm. to millions of deaths millions and millions of deaths like, yeah that's the joke edward yeah yeah like, yeah that's that's what makes it funny oh yeah, what, yeah, yeah. do another joke about uh my genocidal fucking bloodline uh, fucking Habsburgs. god yeah. you you are never wrong in shit talking a Habsburg. always um, go after them always go after Habsburgs. So, you know, you know who learned that lesson? Well, Gaffrolo Princep. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, he did. Oh, God. We love a, we love a Habsburg dropping king. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we love a good uh, dead uh, France mm-hmm, Ferdinand mm-hmm, joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. So, yeah. um, anyway, Maximilian... He has all these political theories that he wants to test out. He's thinking about if you, like, again, and I really do, the book The Last Emperor of Mexico by Edward Shawcross, fucking good book, incredibly mm. readable. I had I finished it in just a couple of days because I couldn't put the thing down. Really, really well-written book. Um, it One of the points that he makes is that, or at least the way in which I interpret Maximilian as being, based on the way he portrays him in the book, is... A guy who has all these little fun theories about how he might want run a country, and he almost approaches being the emperor of Mexico as like playing a game of civilization. Yeah, like right. He, he's yeah. excited to try a new thing out in his game. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does. He makes a. He draws a hard line with Louis Napoleon, which is that he won't agree to go to Mexico and try to be the emperor unless the Mexican people themselves acclaim their desire to be governed by him. Now, this was never going to happen. For one thing, Mexico is very large, and Mm -hmm. most of the people living there have absolutely no connection to, like, global culture. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, go to somebody in the fucking Chihuahua and be like, hey, do you want a Habsburg emperor? Like, dude, what the (laughs) fuck, man? Like, I got stuff going on. (laughs) Um... What, what are you talking about? The, yeah. the, the, the idea that these guys would be able to rule a landmass based on borders that they just kind of invented mm-hmm. uh, is is great. I love I mean, it. Go for it. To be it. honest, it's never worked out well for the Mexican government. Yeah, no. It's no one has ever been good at governing Mexico. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one can figure it out. Yeah. Um, so basically what happens is that Napoleon III works with a cadre of defeated conservative Mexican officers to trick Max into thinking that his reign is supported, and then he sends a French army into Mexico to conquer it from the legitimate government. Now, this first army gets its ass kicked, because uh, mm. Benito Juarez 
pretty good military commander. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. also, again, the Mexican state is has just finished several civil wars. It's battered. They don't have a super functional military compared to the French military, which a lot of people will say is the best in the world in this period of time, or at least one of them. So Louis Napoleon sends a much larger army next, which succeeds in smashing all resistance and conquering Mexico. But it conquers Mexico the same way the U.S. conquers Afghanistan. They conquer a bunch of cities leading to the capital and kind of control the roads, right? Mm. But that's all they have. Because they only send like 50,000 men, I think, at the height, which is, again, Mexico's quite big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a big, big place. <laughs> sizable, sizable yeah, nation. Lots um, of land. So they're able to, and the French can beat, because they've got a modern army, modern guns, and the Mexican military doesn't really have a lot of that stuff, they can beat any field army that arrays itself against their main force. But that main force can only be in like one area at a time, and they can't, with you know, splitting the army up, number one, sometimes you're going to lose groups of the army, right? Because you mm-hmm. can beat 100 French soldiers or something. And then the other problem is that like you can't hold anything but the cities and the roads. Now, they do try to build up a Mexican army, like an imperial army. They're so an imperial Mexican army. It is of debatable competence. Again, mm-hmm. think of Afghanistan. This is actually very similar to fucking yeah. Afghanistan. Um, and costs very quickly skyrocket. Now, Napoleon III, basically his business plan here had been, well, we'll conquer Mexico. We'll stick this guy on the throne. You know, pretty soon he'll be able to, he'll just take over the Mexican army and mm-hmm. they'll keep the peace. And then France will get to basically to get its pick of all of the resources in Mexico. Yeah, get right? all that silver, dude. Right, all, there's a lot of good shit in Mexico. And yeah. it's like, this will be, this will work out. We get a couple of years of costs and then it'll be worth it. He is as good a businessman as Elon Musk. Yes. That's how this shit works. He's going to spend $44 billion. Uh, yeah. and he's going to go, now everyone gets a blue yeah. check mark. Yeah. The Mexican people here are Twitter and they're about to do what Twitter did when <laughs> Musk took over, which is start a massive grassroots rebellion against the empire. <laughs> Everyone um, just has fake accounts saying they're a Habsburg and just make fun yeah, of them. Yeah, the, uh, just awesome a shitload stuff. of Habsburg accounts. <laughs> um, so Maximilian enjoys fairly little popular support. He is handicapped by the fact that, again, he's a liberal. So he keeps pushing through these liberal reforms and announcing these very liberal laws. But his entire base of cons- support are like ghoulish right-wingers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the people who he is trusting to back him hate the way he wants to run the country. Yeah. And when he does things that like... Benito Juarez's supporters probably would have liked in a different circumstance, his primary backers desert him. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he has to like crack down on the people of Mexico in order to like get their support back, which fuels the rebellion. It's just a doomed situation. Yeah, he's threading an unthreadable needle needle here. Yeah, it's not even a needle. He's just like sticking a string into a solid nail. (laughs) Why would it go through? (laughs) Can't can't get anything through this fucking needle. (laughs) This is bullshit, dude. This this shouldn't be this hard. So the fuckery reaches its peak under what becomes called the Black Decree or Bando Negro of 1865, in which all captured Republican soldiers are to be executed without trial. Um, Mm. Now, do you think this lowers the tensions? Yeah, I think it definitely uh, just completely equalizes it. Everyone's like, oh, man, fuck, I guess we won't do this no more. So what happens, what this actually results in is the Republicans are like, well, then whenever we capture French soldiers and Mexican imperial soldiers or government officials, we will kill them without trial. And of course, this leads to the slaughter of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Just nightmarish bloodletting. (laughs) 
When Max had headed uh, over to take command of the government, Louis Napoleon had promised him that all the resources of the French state would be dedicated to seeing the success of his imperial project. But costs quickly outstripped what Louis had been willing to pay. And since the imperial government didn't control much actual territory, exploiting Mexican resources for French profit proved impossible. In 1866, all of this came to a head for several reasons. One, the U.S. Civil War ended. The reason why Louis Napoleon had timed sending Maximilian over there was that the U.S. was fighting a civil war, and he was like, this will keep him occupied for a while. They won't be able to get involved. Yeah. His plan was to make a fire break for U.S. power, right? Mm-hmm. While they're busy fighting themselves, I will establish control over Mexico right. using Maximilian, and then by the time they finish, this will just be done, and they won't be able to stop it. Yeah. Um, now... So the U.S. Civil War ends, um, and you know now the U.S. is no longer distracted. Uh, the Union starts sending weapons across the river to Benito Juarez because we're oh, like, yeah. well, we don't really like <laughs> this at all. Yeah. Um, uh, and there are constant worries. It's a legitimate worry that the Americans might just invade and attack the French army in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, which we could have done, and it would have been the only time U.S. troops entered Mexico for a reason that wasn't fucked up. Yeah, for a cool <laughs> one. That yeah, been we sick. almost invaded Mexico. For for a good reason. Oh, Don't worry, did we didn't. Cool. <laughs> we didn't. We continued our streak of only fucking over Mexico. <laughs> yep. A proud and time-honored a American proud tradition. heritage of yeah. Americans <laughs> fucking with Mexico, stealing mm-hmm. land, and destroying entire political yeah. structures. This is kind of the one time in which we were almost nice to Mexico. Oh, man. <laughs> so close. Uh, and we will talk about what happens next. But first, you know who is nice to Mexico? Me. That's right. Matt Lieb, our primary sponsor. A lot That's of you don't right. know this. This whole podcast is paid for by Matt Lieb. That's he just, right. he just keeps getting credit cards. I just <laughs> listen, I am in a lot of debt right now. Mm-hmm. But the if mm-hmm. is people if people can get their bastards content, mm-hmm. I'm willing to pay. So, so buy you, my Matt. product, Matt Lieb. <laughs> buy me. Just send him money so he can <laughs> he money. can keep financing this debt. Help. <laughs> Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress. 
30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. So, at the same time that his that Maximilian's Mexican Empire is collapsing, shit in Europe starts to go wrong, with the Prussian Otto von Bismarck launching a war against Austria. Uh, Napoleon in a secret meeting with Bismarck, agrees not to defend Austria's Franz Joseph. Yep. And part of it was like, so Bismarck is like, hey man, I'm going to go to war with Austria. You don't really like this guy. You fought him in a war. Just let me do it once. I'm going to take some shit. And you know what? You'll get some territory, right? Some yeah. of this territory that's kind of like on the border of like Italy and France and all this stuff. We'll get, you'll get some of that. You know, it'll work out great for you. I'll, you know, you just got to let me deal with him and I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Like, trust me, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, it'll be good. Trust um, me. I'm Otto von, von, von Bismarck. I'm Otto von Bismarck, most trusted. <laughs> Worthy man in Europe. <laughs> so Bismarck, uh, like Napoleon decides to do this because number one, I'm going to get some land out of it. That'll be good. And number two, this is going to be years, right? Austria and Germany fighting each other. They're basically equal. You know, they'll be, they'll be locked into this brutal, it'll weaken both of them. And then France will be even stronger. There's no way this will get done quickly, yeah. like seven weeks, say. It, it, is, it is over almost immediately, because <laughs> what Otto von Bismarck has done is invent Germany. And if you know one thing about Germany, pretty good at war. That's Pre- their pretty thing. good at war in Western Europe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like the way ours is baseball, theirs yeah. is doing war. Yeah, in Western Europe. Once they go east, it gets a lot messier well, yeah, for them. No one can but figure that out. But solid Western, at Western Europe. That. Yeah, mm-hmm. so as you said, they basically win this war against Prussia immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as soon as they do, Napoleon's like, so how about that territory that you guys said I could get? And uh, the fucking Bismarck's like, what, what was that? Huh? What, uh, what was that? <laughs> oh, you didn't, I was, I said psych afterwards. Did yeah. you not hear when I said psych? And going into this, prior to the start of that war with Austria, the kind of assumption everyone else would have made is that, like, France was the premier land power in Europe. But part of what Napoleon III and everyone else realize when he get, when Prussia goes to war with Austria is that, like, they got, like, 700,000 guys they can call up. And they're, yeah. like, they're pretty good at this. Right, yeah. <laughs> this is actually a very frightening situation. I've just yeah, realized, and tens of thousands of my best soldiers are in Mexico. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oops. <laughs> yes. Uh, fuck. I didn't yeah. realize that you guys would get like really good at this. <laughs> uh, this, this has all gone terribly for me. Yeah. So, so he, uh, Napoleon, Louis Napoleon is suddenly much less interested, uh, pouring men and resources into Mexico. He begins pressuring Maximilian to abdicate, but Max doesn't want to leave his empire. He's dedicated to it. And the, the brave men fighting for him, he's very delusional is what's yeah, actually I learned Spanish here. and everything. Like, yeah. you want me to leave now? I have a castle and everything. Yes, I please. have a hacienda and I mm-hmm. habla espanol. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't he's, understand why I have to leave now. People love me. It is very funny because he like tries to eat a Mexican meal as soon as he arrives and he gets sick because it's too hot. <laughs> <laughs> like, man, you can't eat fucking chilies and you think you're going to be the emperor of Mexico. Just, My just God. sweating his ass off like he's on hot ones. Just, yeah. <laughs> uh, what a bitch. Yeah, so Louis Napoleon, uh, yeah, is about to abandon him. I'm going to quote from the emperor of Mexico, the last emperor of Mexico again here. In August, Napoleon III tried to claim the territories that Bismarck had promised, but the Prussian chancellor responded with a diplomatic equivalent of laughing in the French emperor's faces, pointing out that the Prussian army was already mobilized. Now it was war not only on the other side of the Atlantic that Napoleon III had to worry about now, but across the Rhine, where Bismarck marshaled the forces of German nationalism behind a militaristic regime. France was in, an e uh, was in a state of feverish crisis, and attacks on Napoleon III's policy towards Prussia were rife. Even Napoleon III's wife, Eugenie, berated him for being outwitted by Bismarck. The last thing the French emperor wanted was an unpleasant reminder of another unpopular foreign policy disaster. He tried to delay meeting with Carlotta. Pleading illness, he urged her to visit her brother in Brussels first, but Carlotta had already telegrammed the courts at Brussels and Vienna, informing them that she would not be visiting because of the refusal to send more volunteers. Ignoring the French emperor's excuses, she proceeded to Paris. So... Napoleon III has Eugenie try to stop Carlotta from meeting with him, but she will not be dissuaded. And she eventually gets her audience with Napoleon III, and she's been over in Mexico for a while. And while she's been over, things have gone a lot worse for him, and he's gotten sick and old. So yeah. she she sees this guy that all of her and her husband's hopes lay on continued French support. They cannot mm -hmm. hold on to their empire without France. She suddenly realizes that he's he's fucked like he's he's old and broken and she loses her mind. She spends like the rest of her husband's reign locked in a castle and it completely out of her mind. Jeez. Um she had been so invested in the idea of being the empress um and as soon as it becomes clear we're doomed, she just she can't function anymore. It's very funny. Like fuck her and fuck him. Um <laughs> Maximilian meanwhile being equally deranged tries to continue the fight as French troops began to withdraw and I will give him credit for this Unlike Plonplon, he kind of ends on a courageous note. Like he leads his army into a disastrous battle where they're under siege in the city for weeks. Mm -hmm. um, they win a couple of like battles where they like push out against the Mexican army. And he like stays there until the bitter end in this really nasty situation. So there's a degree of at least physical courage he has while still yeah. being completely deranged. Um, he gets captured and executed. They fucking shoot his ass. They firing squad. And they, Benito Juarez, again, the whole world, gov all of the governments of the world start like begging Mexico, start sending people to Benito Juarez saying, please don't kill him. Don't kill him. He's a Habsburg, you know. He's a Habsburg. The American people. president's like, guy, don't do this. Don't do this. But Benito, Benito Juarez being rad as shit is like, look, man, he was the emperor. He passed the black decree. All captured soldiers get executed. I'm mm -hmm. not going to hold him to a different standard than the tens of thousands of men he had killed. Like, mm. fuck him. Hell yeah, Benito Juarez, kind of sick. The coolest. Um, Just the, the coolest. coolest. The, the, the goat. Um, Maximilian died cursing Napoleon III for failing to come to his aid. Very funny. <laughs> the second French intervention in Mexico lasted five and a half years and ca caused as many as 70,000 deaths, all Fuck. of which happened at the instigation of Napoleon III. Yeah. So 
1870, Louis Napoleon is a sick man in steep decline. France is still powerful and in fact wealthier than ever, but its military is geared toward the kind of colonial wars they'd been fighting in Mexico. Think about how the U.S. military specialized for Iraq and Afghanistan. It's, the, it's a small professional force capable of besting insurgents and holding cities. Mm-hmm. The problem was Russia, Prussia had focused on becoming a land power. Yeah. Um, with a massive base of the French military on paper, they can maybe get 400,000 troops together, and that's going to be hard for them. It's going to take them some time to get everybody like in the same place. The Prussian military can, in the space of like a week or two, have 700,000 men armed and marching. Like Mm -hmm. they are very, very good at this. They figured out this war thing. They figured figured out out this war thing. And Otto von Bismarck, makes it his goal starting the late 1860s, I want to have a war with France. Number one, we lost a couple against Napoleon, and that still rankles us. And number two, I want some of this territory that's like currently France, but that's right on the edge of Germany. I want to take that shit, and I'm going to make a Germany. So Bismarck starts jinking and pushing to like make it kind of find a way in which to justify having a war with he France. He needs a pretext. He's he needs a pretext. And specifically, he wants France to start the war. Yes. Right? That's the thing that he wants most. So in 1867, the same year Maximilian gets shot to death in Mexico, Prussia forms the North German Confederation, the immediate precursor to the nation of Germany. Now, everything comes to a head over the question of who will be the next king of Spain. For a brief period of time, the king of Prussia, who's who, Bismarck works for the king of Prussia, right? Germany's not a thing yet. The thing right. Germany becomes a thing based around the scaffolding of Prussia. Um or is scaffolded around the core that is Prussia. The Prussian king puts forward a a German prince to be the king of Spain, and is like, hey, maybe this guy could do it. And the emperor of France is terrified by this, right? Louis Napoleon is like, well, if that happens, then France is going to be surrounded on both sides by states led by German emperors. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to let that happen. And the Prussian king, who also doesn't really want war, Bismarck is orchestrating this, is like, okay, hey, hey, you know, just an idea, just an idea, just pitch in here. Just throwing a pitch out here, man. Chill out. You know, there are no uh, bad suggestions or no bad yeah. ideas. So this this gets this gets rescinded, which should have been a big win for Napoleon the Third. Um, but he's still really worried that the the Prussians are going to try something. So he sends out his foreign minister, and this guy Count Benedetti is is the same as everyone else that Napoleon the Third picks for a job. Shit eatingly mm-hmm. incompetent, right? Yeah, yeah. If we but- know one thing about the man, he, he is not good at picking people. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just all of his drinking buddies. And yeah, it's just like uh, hey, better dummy. You do it. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you okay. get in there, Benny. Yeah, you got it. You got it, Benny. You got You'll it. You figure it out. You got it's it. Easy. Yeah. So, um, he ha- he sends Count Benedetti over to the King of Prussia, who's like at a fucking bath. You know, he's doing like a big spa day, um, to ask him to promise not ever to put a German prince on the throne. And the conversation goes pretty well. Obviously, the, the King of Prussia doesn't want a war with France over this. But Otto von Bismarck decides to do a little bit of fake news and spin this up as a diplomatic incident in which the French ambassador had been kicked out of the king's presence, never allowed never to be allowed back again. This was not true, but yep. Bismarck knows like all that matters is getting this bad news out there. Quote, 
By July 14th, the news is on the newspaper's desk all over Europe. As soon as the news of this supposed diplomatic incident is published, the streets of the French capital are taken over by demonstrations against the Germans. The windows of the Prussian embassy are smashed by rioters. Meanwhile, in Germany, Bismarck fans the flames of nationalism by distributing for free copies of, newspaper, copies of newspapers with his own version of the event in order to make it look like Benedetti was pestering the king with haughty demands. By the 15th of July, the French government is in turmoil and must compose with the Allies clamoring for war and the suspicion of the opposition. There is a last attempt to ask clarifications from the Count Benedetti, but the telegram arrives too late and the careful examination of the diplomatic papers asked for the, by the opposition is refused. And so basically there's this, you know, Bismarck puts out this fake news that, you know, they, uh, they insulted our, uh, the, uh, our, our national yeah. honor. Yeah. And this is called the Ims dispatch. Um, this, like this, this dip, like diplomatic cable that goes out that like Bismarck, uh, uh, fucking fucks with. You gotta be and real confident to be like, be, I'm gonna make this country clamor for war with us. And it, it works. The French people do. And Louis Napoleon, he is old and he is sick and he does not think this is a good idea. But all of these generals, the same ones who'd convinced him, you know, to invade Indochina, say it's a good idea. And most importantly, his wife Eugenie is like, if you don't do this, you're a fucking coward. Yeah, right? this is how I come. Yeah, this is, I don't want to fuck you, but I want you to go to war against fucking Prussia. Uh, I don't have sex. This is know, they, how I do it. They have a son at this point. She's like, your son will have nothing to inherit if you don't go to war against Germany right now. You know, what What? Are, what kind of example are you putting for your son if you don't start a pointless war against the new great land power in Europe? <laughs> um, so Louis Napoleon, being fundamentally a coward in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. declares war on Germany. <laughs> Smart. Um, this goes pretty bad. So for one thing, <laughs> on paper, he's supposed to be able to get about 400,000 dudes together, which mm -hmm. even though the Prussians outnumber that, you're on the defense. You've got castles and fortresses. You can you can win a war, a defensive war that way, especially mm -hmm. if that's just kind of your first wave. But he actually has trouble getting more than like a quarter of a million dudes together. The other problem is that, so you know how he forgot to bring artillery to the Crimean War? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Never learns that lesson. So ah, the, the, I knew I the, forgot something. <laughs> the artillery that the French bring into the Franco-Prussian War is the same artillery, in some case, literally the same guns that Napoleon had brought into battle in 1812. Oh, boy. Yeah. Meanwhile, oh boy. the Prussians have, have breech-loading steel cannons. Fuck. <laughs> with modern artillery. Yeah, they got uh, shells yeah. and stuff. They're, they're not just firing balls at Yeah, they're not just shooting hour. heavy balls real fast. <laughs> Basically, the French cannons are like hucking a Mazda Miata, like pretty fast. And the, the German cannons are actual cannons. Yeah. Um. The other thing that's a problem, so the French aren't entirely like, it's not like they're entirely like, uh, behind the curve militarily they've just been optimizing for these little these little uh brush fire wars so one thing they have on their side the french regular forces these colonial troops have the best rifle in the world at the time just the germans are astonished at how well this fucking gun works it's a great great infantry rifle very few of their soldiers actually have it right the actual mm. territorial french army just has old ass muskets so anyway he 
goes and he goes with this army to command it in the field. Because again, Eugenie like <laughs> basically tells him that he's a fucking cuck if he doesn't go know, lead his army so... into battle. And he is he is it. he is dying of hemorrhoids, right? Yeah. His fucking gallbladder is exploding. Hemorrhoids. He yeah. can't sit, he can't stand. <laughs> yeah. Certainly he can command the field. <laughs> he can barely move. He's got his like teenage boy with him. Um and they have they have this one little battle where like um they move into Prussian territory and like kill 60 guys. And his, he has, he gets his air close enough that like a bullet whizzes over his head. He's like, there you go. You did it. You've been blooded in combat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then they, then they try to do a battle in a place called Sedan. And this is not a military history podcast, but it doesn't go well. Mm. Um, in, in short, they get their asses absolutely handed to them. Yeah. Um, for all of military history since the age of Hannibal, one of the things that like generals will talk about is uh, is doing a Cannae, right? Cannae is this famous battle where there's this 100,000-man Roman army and Hannibal surrounds it completely and mm-hmm. then just spends a day butchering everyone slowly to death inside it. It's one of the most famous victories in all of military history. The Germans do a Cannae at Sedan. They surround the entire French military and kill quite a few of them. And... This is actually kind of one of the last acts of heroism of of Louis Napoleon. The maybe the only one I, I guess it would probably be to say is that his generals are like, no, 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 we've got to fight until relief comes. We've got to keep it going. He looks out at what's happening. He's like, there's ninety thousand men here, and the the Prussians will kill them all. Mm-hmm. Like if we keep fighting, they will kill everyone here unless I personally surrender. Yeah. Um, now this isn't the first thing he does. Uh, in fact, he attempts to get himself killed by Prussian fire multiple times before he does this. He does. He does go for suicide again. That is our boy. Um, and it I gets how many times he fails at getting <laughs> yeah, he, shot. He cannot kill himself. He God does get his it. his aide de camp gets killed, and like two of them get wounded when he just kind of like stands in front of these Prussians' guns, but he doesn't get hurt at all. So. <laughs> He, he, he tries to kill himself. He accidentally yeah. shoots two more people in the <laughs> yeah, He shoots another French soldier right in the <laughs> fucking throat. Uh, very funny. Um, so, yeah, he, he eventually uh, goes to the Germans and is like, hey, you know the emperor of France? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, he's me. And they're like, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> they have no idea that he's there. They don't know that he... So this is a real dub for the Germans. Like, oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sure. They we capture the, the emperor. And he yeah. like... When he surrenders, the the... Like basically one of the conditions he does under is that he is surrendering his army. He's not surrendering for the nation of France. Right. And very quickly after that, the French respond by having a revolution while they're fighting and losing this war. Yeah. Um, and he is no longer the emperor of France. Um, yep. He spends some time in, in custody of the Prussians. They lock him up, but like rich guy style, you know, yeah. he's, in, Again, he's in like some sort of castle. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, nice prison. He's writing yeah. stuff. He's fucking, you know, yeah. he's living his worst life. Yeah, he's living his worst life. His uh, his family has to deal with the fact that they are no longer running France. France kind of falls apart. Uh, the Germans lay siege to Paris. Oh it's yeah, people pretty, eating pretty, rats. People are eating rats. It is ugly, and it does yeah. not leave the people of France very well induced towards Napoleon the Third. Although yeah. he never gives up hope of uh proclaiming another empire like he because he fly he goes back to exile in england and he spends the last couple of his years he is actively working on another plan to return the france and take over the monarchy yet again 
<laughs> but then he dies in 1873, just before he can try his fourth coup attempt. Oh, um, man. That yeah. would have been, honestly, I think... I think that time he'd have gotten it right. I think he would have gotten it right that I time. Think, I think it would have worked out. Everything yeah. would have been good. France yeah. could have been saved. One of the sad things is he gets like attacked a lot by the French and by like partic- even conser- particularly conservatives in France for um, surrendering at Sedan. Mm-hmm. Uh, his last words are, we weren't cowards at Sedan, were we? Which is like, no, dude, that was like the only thing you did that only wasn't craven. Thing. The yes. only thing you did that was actually putting other people's lives before yes. you were your own. Yeah, that was like the first time like that empathy bone mm-hmm. that your dad tried desperately to instill into you. Yeah, really, like, really gave everything he could uh, yeah. while still being an absent father uh, yeah. <laughs> to push into you. <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, at the, at that time, that was uh, that's the best kind of fathering you can have. He is you know? this is he is Louis Bonaparte is the best father we've talked about on this show. Hundred <laughs> percent. I feel 100%. confident saying that. Yes, just based on those like letters. <laughs> alone you're just like oh yeah you know he's sure he wasn't there and was like i don't love you and i think you're dumb and said it to his face and uh you know i think what did he say uh read your book hated it (laughs) hated it hated it stupid book how dare you think you could write this still best dad (laughs) best best dad so far on the show yeah well matt that's the podcast well that is uh that is a wonderful story of a great great fail son Mm-hmm. And uh, oh, you know the failest of sons. The failest of sons. I mean, you've got to hand it to him. He was able to actually achieve just enough to fail spectacularly. Yeah, you know, getting he, captured is yeah. just mwah, chef's kiss. Yeah, that's what a beautiful way to end your empire. Um, yeah. Being captured and giving everyone Germany. Yeah, 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 yeah. Inventing modern Germany. Yeah, it. yeah. That's uh, hey. How's that going to go for the future? You think, uh, you know, I, I actually stopped reading my German history textbook in right after uh, August 1st, 1914, but it's going well. Yeah. So far um, so good. Yeah. I, I would love to meet whoever the current Kaiser is over there. Yeah. I'm sure he's cool and has been in power and stability and peace. Mm-hmm. That sounds like the Germany I probably know. <laughs> <laughs> oh god what a, uh, you know this was a fun one this was it wasn't a fun about one. nazis but mm-hmm. it was about proto-fascism and yeah i love that it is cool it's cool and good matt yeah. can What's people up? find you anywhere you can find me uh on the world's only the wire rewatch podcast pod yourself the wire or the world's only sopranos podcast pod yourself a gun and once again um we're doing a live show at sf sketch fest saturday january 28th at 10 p.m over at the piano fight theater go to sfsketchfest.com and please buy tickets because it would be embarrassing if no one came it would be embarrassing. Go go there. Go now. Find Matt Lieb at SF Sketchfest. You can see me in person. Yeah. You can assassinate me. Yeah. Sell your possessions. Fly to San Francisco. Live on the streets in the weeks leading up to the event. You, know? you should. And then you kill me. Murder him. Murder me, please. And, uh, and also, yeah, give us five stars in review. That's really all I want. Mm-hmm. Um, fucking, you know, there's enough listeners out there on this podcast that I should be able to break a thousand. Come on. There we go. All right. Yeah. All that's, right. those are my plugs guys. I love you. I love we you love too. You. I, I love you more than my, my five week old daughter. 
Yeah. I don't that's not, I don't think that's true. Not true, but I want you to think it's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Gaslight me. Yeah. Gaslight me, Daddy. Uh, uh, we have a stuff. Behind the Bastards live stream event coming up with Margaret Kiljoy on December 8th at 6 p.m. Pacific. You can get tickets wow. at momenthouse.co slash BTB. Heroic. Erotic. Yep. Check it out. Yep. I'll be there watching on the live stream. You don't you don't have to do that. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna be in the comment <laughs> section yep. going, kill me, kill me, kill me. Please. Do it, do it, and, do it. And no one it. will be able to do it. I'm like Napoleon the third in that way. And we are done. Boom, shakalaka. Behind the Bastards is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.